From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. The conservative Christian activist wing has been much more receptive to its scholars than, let's say, the secularist activist wing has been to its own. So I feel when I look at these rather brilliant legal strategies uh, that we see coming forward from the Christian right, I don't see the same connect between the scholarship being produced and the activism on the ground in the secular movement. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash not seen radio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted to welcome back to the show Professor Jacques Berlinerblau. He's professor of Jewish civilization at the Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. He's the author of numerous books and scholarly articles on the topic of secularism. Longtime listeners will recall that we spoke with Professor Berlinerblau back in 2012 during our first season about his book, How to Be Secular. Today we're talking about his most recent release, Secularism, The Basics, which has just come out from Routledge Press. Professor Jacques Berlinerblau, welcome to Things Not Seen. Dr. Dolt, thank you for having me. So I want to start back in the recent history of January 6th and the insurrection that happened at the Capitol. I think that there's a lot of conversation that is going on right now about the various roles of political and ideological factions during that event. But one of the things that you recently wrote about in the Chronicle of Higher Education is that we shouldn't discount the religious aspect of that event. And I think that might be a good place for listeners who think that they have an idea about what secular is or secularism is, that may be a good place to start because what we're seeing there was an act against the state. And you want to be bringing in the conversation to say this is not a new phenomenon. And in fact, a controversy or a tension between the state and religious ideas and religious forces has been going on for centuries. Now, those are my words, not yours. But if that's a good starting point, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Great. And once again, David, thank you for having me because these discussions are so important. I think that January 6, 2021 was like American secularism's I told you so moment. For a very, very long time, secularists in this country have been harking back to an old intuition. And the intuition is that God is great, religion is great, but unless religion is regulated by the state, which is kind of the core of what secularism is, there is a possibility that they can overheat, combust, and endanger the state, endanger themselves, and endanger other religious and non-religious people. 
And so if I'm hearing you correctly, so this notion of a kind of like the pot boiling over, which is the image that you just used, in order to stop that pot boiling over, you used a phrase that I know my listeners are going to want to unpack, and that is the state controlling religion in some way. And mm-hmm. I think that may make some listeners uncomfortable. So maybe let's unpack a little bit about what you mean by that. What does it mean to say that the state should control religion in your view? Right. That's the mother load. That's why secularism is so unpopular on the right and on the left. Uh, It has the unique distinction of being an ism that infuriates both the right and the left, and it centers around the massive power of the state. Let's take a step back, since we're dealing with an audience that is biblically literate. If you read Romans 13, which every Christian reader here is very cognizant of, you have the Apostle Paul essentially saying, submit to the governing authorities. He says it again in Peter It's said over and over again in the New Testament. Old Testament's a little bit different, right? So for those listeners that are chagrined by the idea of submission to the state, I would give a pass to those non-Christian listeners. But to Christian listeners, we have to think about the scriptures which specifically demand that the pious Christians submit to the governing authorities. Now, it is not adventitious that so many great Christian political philosophers came to precisely the same conclusion when thinking about the interplay between the state and various religious groups. So while it might be high heresy to Christians today, I'm simply imploring my, my Christian friends to go back to the scriptures and see what Paul has written. And to me, it's very clear that, yes, somebody's got to regulate religion. Why not the state? Of course there's a problem, David. I know. I get it. What do you do with a tyrannical state? What do you do with a ruler who's completely insane? Calvin dealt with this issue. Luther dealt with this issue. Locke dealt with this issue. That's a problem. But let's get to the fundamentals first. In theory, we do need a strong, principled, judicious state to regulate its own relation with religious groups and relations between religious groups. If I can raise an issue that you yourself note in your book, Secularism, the Basics, when Paul, for example, was writing that in Romans 13, you note that his notion of how long Christians were going to have to live under the state was very minimal because the sense was that Christ was going to be coming back pretty soon. And so you you note the fact that, yes, Romans 13 says that, but that's just because Paul was thinking that this would be a limited term kind of commitment. Now that we're two millennia into this project of waiting, how does that change the balance of Romans 13? Yeah, I mean, either we need new revelations Or, I mean, there's so much talk, especially on the religious right, about originalism, right, and the infallible text and what the text actually says, the plain meaning of the text. That's what the text says. I'm not a Christian, David. I'm just saying the text says submit to the governing authorities. So in theory, not in theory, in practice, there's a tremendous affinity between many types of Christian theological speculation and secularism. In fact, one of the surprise arguments of the book, it doesn't surprise me anymore, I've been talking about this for decades now is no Christianity, no secularism. Uh, Secularism is a gift, if you will, of Christian political philosophy and internal Christian dialogues and disputes and wars about how a polity is properly governed. So special shout out to Paul, special shout out to Augustine, special shout out to Martin Luther and lots of other folks. That's the lineage of secularism. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Jacques Berlinerblau. He's professor of Jewish civilization in the Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. He's the author of numerous books and scholarly articles on secularism. Longtime listeners will recall we spoke to him back in 2012 about his book, How to Be Secular. Today we're speaking to him about his most recent book, Secularism, The Basics, which is out recently from Routledge Press. So as a way of talking about this and placing it for our listeners, so far you've mentioned the fact that we're talking about a kind of American style of secularism, and we've been talking about secularism kind of vis-a-vis Christianity. One of the things that was really intriguing to me about your book, Secularism, The Basics, is the fact that it doesn't just take that to be the kind of monadic view of what secularism is, but instead you also are looking at secularism in multiple non-Anglo-European contexts, but also in global contexts. I was fascinated to learn, for example, that one of the founders of modern Turkey, Ataturk, was in some ways involved in secularism. So maybe let's take a step back and say secularism in one sense, in the American sense with regard to Christians, has a certain cant. But when we begin to talk about secularism more globally, what are we talking about? Yeah, one thing, uh, secularism is often criticized because it's seen as a very Euro-white Christian thing, paradoxically. And uh, I'm not comfortable with that. It might be true, but I'm just not comfortable with that. So I wanted to look for other taproots of the secular idea. And I actually found them. So what I want to argue is this notion that religions are great and are a positive force, et cetera, et cetera. But the state is superior and needs to control those religions all the while granting them as much toleration and freedom of religious exercise as possible, might not be just Euro. So some of the interesting civilizational candidates I've found were the following. China, there's an affinity between Confucianism and tenets of secular thought. There's a real love of kind of quietly venerating and worshiping, but in a way that doesn't disturb others. There's a theologian, I believe he's at Emory, Abdullahi An-Naim, who argued that within Islam, there is much more affinity to secular ideas than many of us might be led to believe. And moving forward in the present world, we have secularisms in India. Indian secularism, as I argue, is a sort of hybrid between very debased British colonialist ideas and some of the original energy of Indian civilization. But most fascinatingly to me, Africa. There are dozens of secular constitutions in Africa, and I didn't get around to that component of the research. I want to know how they got there, and I want to know if people are abiding by secular precepts in so many African countries that are claiming to be secular. I'm really curious about that. What I'm trying to say is whether you like secularism or not, it's a fact on the ground, and it's a multicultural fact on the ground, and it's something that we all need to think about. Let me wrap it up this way, David. Let's say the dreams of the enemies of all secularisms came true, and we eliminated secularism, all right? We killed it, we ground it to dust, we buried it, right? We encanted an imprecation over its bones, right? The problem would still remain. How does the state engage with diverse religious groups and now non-religious groups under its suzerainty? That problem is eternal, and that's what secularism tries to answer. Well, and maybe as a way of helping my listeners visualize what we're talking about, has a secular regime 
ever actually existed in practice? Or is this still a kind of aspirational goal that we're reaching towards? I, I guess part of the way that I'm asking this is secularism a binary? We either have it or we don't. Or is it more like a sliding scale and we can implement parts of it and we can point to places where it's been implemented better or worse? Right. Uh, definitely. It's on a spectrum. Uh, if you want to see a secular regime, the variant of secularism there is known as laicity. Go to France. All right? That's about as pure as it comes. If you want to see uh, a secular regime run amok, gone wild, look at the former USSR, all right? which is a variant which I refer to as Soviet atheist secularism, which I don't think is worthy of our praise or our emulation. The United States... Our model has had a very checkered past and right now is on life support. It languishes in a theologically induced coma, courtesy of the religious right. Well, and and so that, I think, raises some issues, because when you talk about the example of laicite in in France. I think that there are people who look at that and say, but it really minimizes the ability of people to express themselves. And and it has perhaps been deployed in a non-equal way. In other words, people who have visual expressions of Islamic faith are oftentimes singled out, whereas people who have visible expressions of Catholic or Christian faith may not be as targeted. How do you respond to those kind of points where there's a, a kind of ideal there of secularity, but it's applied in a kind of checkerboard fashion. Yeah, so this is going to have to be a, a big back and forth between us because there are many parts to this. You've raised a lot of valid objections to ICT, but but before we get to the objections, and let's get back to the objections because they're important, they're problems. I want the Anglos out there, shout out to all the Anglos out there, to understand that France is not the United States and their history is different. And there's a long tradition of American journalists and British journalists going to France and just being shocked by laïcité and the way it treats religious groups. They shouldn't be that shocked given the unique history of France, which is nothing like the history of the United States. Our founding vis-a-vis religious issues is a pretty peaceful moment amongst a bunch of Protestant sectaries, a couple of Catholics, very few Jews, all white men having a more or less civil discussion about the role of religion in American public life. France is the complete opposite. Uh, The revolution of 1789, the shock of Napoleon's return, he gets kicked out, he comes back, he gets kicked out, he comes back. 1848, the commune, the Dreyfus affair, the 1905 law. All right, so here's the parallel I draw. When the French come to the United States and they see something like critical race theory, Many, the ones that I meet are like, this is crazy. Why are you guys so obsessed with race? And my response is because this is like America's original sin, right? This is something that is so constitutive of this country, right? Since 1619, that we have to engage it in ways that you, the French, might find very odd. So I'm imploring the Anglos out there not to go to Paris or, you know, Marseille or Cannes and be that person or to be that Anglo that go- and doesn't understand why the French are the way the French are. They live in abject terror of the power of religion, and in particular, the Catholic Church. They have very good reasons for feeling that sense of dread and terror, and they created a polity that reflects their dread and terror of the Catholic Church. But now, David, we have to get to more complicated issues. I'm going to let you redirect me 
because not all is well with mice. Well, and we will pick that up when we come back from our break. But for right now, let me just remind listeners you're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Jacques Berlinerblau. He's professor of Jewish civilization at the Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. He's the author of numerous books and scholarly articles on secularism. And today we're talking about his most recent book, Secularism, The Basics, out recently from Routledge Press. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of conversations and interviews, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Jacques Berlinerblau. He's professor of Jewish civilization in the Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. He's the author of numerous books and scholarly articles on secularism. And today we're talking about his recent book, Secularism, The Basics, which is out recently from Routledge Press. Okay, so before the break, we were talking about laïcité in France, and we were talking about some of the reasons why laïcité exists in France, as opposed to the kind of way that we think about the separation of church and state here in America. One thing that kind of rang out for me is that when we're talking about secularism, we're actually talking about secularisms, and that these have genealogies. They have ways that they have developed over time, and that we have to take those kind of family trees seriously if we're going to understand some of the differences that we're talking about. In other words, we can't just look at one secularism in one place and another secularism in another and and really grasp those differences on the surface. Now, these are my words, not yours. As I'm saying that, have have I got it, or would you say it in a different way? No, you've nailed it. One of the problems with secularism is its adversaries always liken it to Soviet atheist secularism, which I'd be the first person to say is an abject disaster. I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. There are many different types of secularisms with different intellectual and cultural genealogies, right? The French version traces back to a view known as Galicianism, which is the oddball view of Philippe le Bel, who's this king in the 13th century, who believes that the king is more powerful than the church, full stop. And they get into it. They get into a variety of scrums, the crown and the cross, over who's on top. That's a uniquely French tradition. There's a uniquely Indian tradition. There's a uniquely Anglo-American tradition routed through the UK. So thank you for saying that. There are many different secularisms. Some are beastly and some are benign. Well, and saying that then, we had talked about some of the upsides of secularism and how it's designed in France with laïcité to sort of avoid the terrors of the religious wars that are very much in their memory. But what are some of the downsides, if there are any? I'm a Franco-American. The American is not comfortable with the way in which France controls religious people with, of late, and a special verve directed towards Muslim citizens. So to me, there's something a little off there. It almost looks like Islam is being singled out, and it almost looks like Judaism 
and Catholicism are being given a free pass. And that's a flaw within laicity. I don't think it's a feature. I think it's a bug. I think it's something that needs to be thought about very carefully. As having grown up in the United States, sure, I believe people should wear anything they want to wear. You want to wear a dark star or a turban or a crucifix. Knock yourself out. That's a very Anglo-American way of thinking about public space. The French see it differently. They rigorously control public space and they don't want religious symbols. They don't want religious processions. They don't want religious celebrations in public. It's something that's unusual about the French. And I think we need to understand it before we excoriate it. This raises something that sort of rang out to me as I was reading your book, Secularism, The Basics. You say, okay, there, you almost raise up a kind of two kingdoms view of this. There's the state and there is religious practice. And the question before us is how should the two interrelate and how hierarchically should they be arranged? But as I was reading that, and we've touched on it already in the conversation, but I really want to ask it explicitly. Like when we look at it in the genealogy of American secularism and American political practices, religion has oftentimes been, for example, subject to kind of economic ideologies and racialist ideologies, by which I mean when Catholics began to come in waves to the United States, they were othered. They were kept in economic disparity, and they were oftentimes treated in the same way that, that or in a similar way to which indentured servants or those that had been released from slavery were treated. And so there's a component here where is just talking about kind of church and state enough, or do we need to add more circles to this Venn diagram? Yeah, we definitely, in this country, we definitely need to add race. So I would rarely say Christian, I would say white Christian when speaking about the United States. And quite frankly, if you read a book like Professor Hamburger's Separation of Church and State, he argues that those who were uh, most insensitive and most discriminatory towards Catholics in the 19th century were invoking the principle of separation of church and state. He believes that separationism has blood on its hands. It's a complicated argument. There's some interesting There's a lot of food for thought there. So absolutely, I wouldn't fetishize separationism and I wouldn't fetishize secularism. And I would concur with your view that maybe this binary is too simple. Maybe we have to inflect our understanding of religion with gender, with race, with class, as we think about how a state is supposed to engage with its religious citizenry. Well, since you mentioned blood on its hands, and since we're talking about the kind of interaction between kind of church poles and state poles in this tension. When you use phrases like the state controlling religious practice or the state controlling the church, one of the things that my mind flashes to is visions of things like Ruby Ridge and armed government agents going and sieging the compound of the Branch Davidians at Waco. If we want to talk about blood on, on the hands, we have examples where, at least in the American context, there has been real repressive state power that has led to violence and even death. Is that the kind of control that you're talking about, or do you envision something else going on here, and what would that look like? No, of course. So that, that's definitely not the control uh, we want. That's the control of the last resort, right? By the same token, we want the control to be fair, right? We don't want Branch Davidian singled out, right? but not that crew that stormed the Capitol on January 6th, right? The proportional response would have been to drop a nuclear bomb on them, right? If we went into 
uh, the Branch Davidian situation with guns. I mean, what do you do when people are storming the citadel of a democracy? So I think secularism's uh, major problem, both theoretically and practically, is what I call the false neutrality problem, right? Every secularism grows up in a culture and has like a home field advantage relationship to one or more religions. And in the United States, it's white Christianity for the longest time, right? American secularism was anti-Mormon, anti-Catholic, very dismissive of Jews, completely racist, right? So American secularism has to own up and understand some of its flaws. You know, it's often noted that the great legal architect of separationism in the United States, Justice Hugo Black, who ushered in the separationist judicial era, was a former member of the Klan, right? I don't think that's adventitious either. I mean, there's something to that, right? American secularism as a social movement has been overwhelmingly white and male, right? So these are problems with the practice of American secularism that clearly need to be rectified. Well, and this is an issue that you bring up in your book, Secularism, The Basics, and that is when we have seen secularism in practice, it has been deployed pragmatically. And by that, I mean those who are minorities will shout for secularism and shout for the kind of restriction of religion as long as they are minority religions. But then when we see, for example, Saudi Arabia or something where Islam has a majoritarian position, or we could think of the decisions of Antonin Scalia versus minority versus majoritarian religions in the Supreme Court, when a formerly minority religion gets power in the public sphere, it oftentimes no longer invokes secularity or secularism, but instead it tries to get Hegemony. Now, these are my words, not yours. How would you address that? Your words are, are kind of like my words, right? So the examples I use in the book, there's this rumor that Muslims are anti-secular. Muslims are, anti are not anti-secular. In India, right, which I believe the second most populous Muslim nation in the world, right, Muslims always supported the Congress Party, which was the secular party, right? Muslims in Pakistan and Saudi Arabia, yeah, are anti-secular because they're in the majority. So the lesson to be learned is uh, your relationship to secularism is often situational. It is not constant and unchanging. So Jews in the United States are overwhelmingly for separation of church and state. But when it comes to Israel, they get really quiet uh, because Israel has no constitution and it's theoretically, technically the Jewish state. And you don't see too many Jews in Israel mobilizing to not call it the Jewish state and just call it the sovereign democratic state of Israel and demanding that a constitution be drafted. So secularism is funny that way. It depends on where you stand or where you sit. Who have been the traditional friends of secularism? In almost any place you go, religious minorities. Or religious minorities tend to be very staunch advocates of one form of secularism or another. Why? Because it protects them from the religious majority. It lets them educate their kids in school without having dogma uh, stuffed down their throats, right? So there's clearly a religious audience, a religious demographic in every nation state for secular governmental policies. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Jacques Berlinerblau. He's professor of Jewish civilization in the Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. He's the author of numerous books and scholarly articles on secularism. Today, we're talking about his most recent book, Secularism, The Basics, which is out recently from Routledge Press. So as we're talking about this, and I'm, I'm staying right now in the American context, so my sort of understanding of how secularism has been enacted in the United States is largely through the mechanism of the Supreme Court. Like when we see legislatures acting, their history tends to be that they will uh, oftentimes 
pass laws that are very favorable to majoritarian religious practices. And then it has been the Supreme Court historically that has stepped in and has made carve-outs. And those carve-outs are interesting because we can think about, for example, Amish communities where they are released from the general and applicable law that says all students must go to school until they're 16. They get a pass from that. But I'm also thinking about a more recent community in the New York area, the Curious Joel community of, of ultra-Orthodox Jews who basically have taken over a town and have basically enacted laws that are very favorable to the Jewish religion. So talk to me about the way in which American secularism sort of has been this piecemeal thing of the court creating carve-outs, but not really generally applicable laws that would be secular. Yep. And let's try to understand why that is, right? The problem is the Constitution and the First Amendment. And I know that's high heresy, but that's why we're here uh, in this great country and we're able to discuss this. Those 16 words, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, are really bad words. I'm sorry. Laura Ingram of Fox News was all over me for saying this in an article, but, you know, bring it, Miss Ingram. Um, I'm just going to say with some jurists, Mr. Madison drafted that poorly. He wasn't thinking very carefully. I read somewhere it was really hot when they were writing this and the windows were closed. I don't know. That's neither here nor there. What do you do with those 16 words, right? When your constitution equips you with only 16 words as to something as complex as the relationship between a government and citizens of faith and the citizens of faith themselves, then everything falls back on the courts, right? Then the courts become the arbiters of where these lines or walls or borders are between church and state. And what do we know about the American court system? We're learning it today. It is subject to the whims and vicissitudes of politics, right? So we have a very problematic secularism in the United States that is built on this wobbly 16-word foundation. Is there a better example? Sure. France has this huge law called the 1905 law regarding separation of church and state, right? That thing's got thousands of words in it. Then there are codes, then there are more. So not everything becomes run through the courts, right? They're actual existing law. India, same case. So American secularism is behind Indian secularism, right? Um, we know that Gandhi, Nehru, and a gentleman called Ambedkar, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, spoke for weeks at independence at the Constitutional Convention about the role of religion in Indian public life. They thought it through. The French thought it through. David, we didn't think it through, right? And now we're paying the price for this. All of us, uh, to invoke Paul, we're groaning together, right, here in the seculum, because we don't have a strong constitutional writ as to how church and state and non-believers, I would add, I don't want to forget our non-believers, are supposed to coexist peacefully for the greater good of God, if you wish, but for the greater good of the nation. So this leads to an interesting conundrum that arose for me also in reading your book, Secularism, The Basics. So a majority votes and the majority in a location, and I, I mentioned the Kyrgios Joel example, but there are multiple examples. If a majority of people in a particular locale say, this is the way that we want our society to be, and they decide that they want their society to be Jewish in the case of Kyrgios Joel or Catholic in the case of the Ave Maria community down in Florida or any number or Amish in that particular sense, there, there's a sense in which, you know, the majority should rule. And so is secularism 
foundationally anti-democratic in that way. Yep. So uh, every time I say this, I get into trouble. Well, according to John Locke, yeah, John Locke, I linger on a passage that to the best of my knowledge, nobody else has noticed in the 1689, a letter concerning religious toleration, where Locke essentially sees what David Dalt just saw, right? He sees it, right? Like four centuries ago. And he's like, well, what if the majority wants the prince to be some type of Anglican despot? What if they like it, right? What if they like the Anglican prince humiliating or mocking or imprisoning Baptists? What do you do? And what Locke says, and I think this is really important, is he says, tough luck. The will of the people, the consent of the people cannot override. I call it the Lockean override, right? I love it, except I wonder, what is it grounded in, right? It's not grounded in the will of the majority. So to review, what Locke argues about a secular liberal democracy is God bless the majority, but even if the majority wants an establishment of religion, it can't have it. And Locke is very pragmatic in this regard. He goes into a careful what you wish for mode, right? What he's saying to the majority and the minorities, all right, you want it? You want it? You want an establishment? of Catholicism in some small town in Florida, or you want Curiosuel in upstate New York, careful, all right? Because there are going to be sectarian divisions within the community. There's going to be violence within 10, 20, 30, 40 years. The chickens are going to come home to roost, and we're going to be right back to the wars of religion that we were in in the early 17th century. That, to me, is deep historical insight. Getting people to agree to that, especially when they're holding the power cards, that's not easy, right? So Locke had this great intuition about suppressing majority rule when it came to religion. Like religion is this special carve-out and it's extremely unpopular. And every time I talk about it, people call me an anti-democrat, an elitist. Um, yeah, I think so. I, I, I think that's a fair criticism, but I think Mr. Locke was obviously. So when I hear you saying that, it sounds like secularism is basically wedded to a very core liberal idea. And I'm using that in the classic sense. We're going we're gonna to use conversation so that we can avoid war. Now, when I say it that baldly, is that right? Is secularism basically the political realization of that ancient liberal ideal? Or would you say it in a different way? I think Locke, Locke is a religious man. All right? Locke is a follower of, of Christ Jesus. Right? I think what, what Locke is saying, we're going to do everything in our power to accommodate you. That's what the word accommodate. We are going to bend over backwards, sir, to let you practice your religion. But if you threaten the safety, the order of the polity, and this is where Locke is unlike modern day liberals, he's going to be, there's going to be some bloodshed. All right. The state's going to come in hard, right? It's going to come in really hot with a lot of firepower, manpower, all those awful things. I think Locke understood the value of a state that cracks down. And naturally, this is something that frustrates and angers, let's say, Foucauldians on the left in the American Academy who are terrified of the liberal democratic nation state and its colonialist excrescences, right? And it also upsets the right, right, who don't want to be tread on by anyone, including a stop sign, right? So what is interesting about secularism is how it unites and gets itself pincered between two completely different political formations precisely because it makes this bet on the integrity of the state. If anyone can do it, the state can do it, and the state is our only salvation. Very liberal in a way, right? God is in our salvation. The state 
is our salvation. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Jacques Berliner Blau. He's professor of Jewish civilization in the Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. Longtime listeners will recall that we spoke to him back in 2012 about his book, How to Be Secular, A Call to Arms for Religious Freedom. He's the author of numerous books and scholarly articles on secularism. And today we're talking about his recent book, Secularism, The Basics, which is out recently from Routledge Press. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Jacques Berlinerblau. He's professor of Jewish civilization in the Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. He's the author of numerous books and scholarly articles on secularism. Longtime listeners will recall that we spoke to Professor Berlinerblau back in 2012 about his book, How to Be Secular, A Call to Arms for Religious Freedom. Today, we're talking to him about his most recent book, Secularism, The Basics, out recently from Routledge Press. We touched on this earlier in the conversation, but I want to come back to it. We sort of looked at the two circles of church and state in the Venn diagram of power relations. But I want to throw a third circle in there, and let's call that enterprise or business or corporations. And and I want to really make this concrete. So I work at a Catholic university. And just recently, my wife and I got a letter about our health insurance that tells us that because I work at a Catholic university, despite the fact that there is a neutral and generally applicable law under the Affordable Care Act that says that everybody should get contraception and contraceptive services for free, there is not going to be that option for my family because we work at a Catholic university. So we have here a business that is using a a sort of religious argument against a law that is made by the government, but it's happening in a context that is neither the state nor my church. It's a sort of third space. So I want to think with you about that. How do we account, particularly in the American context, but maybe in others, about the role of business and corporations in this equation of power dynamics? Yeah, I too work at a Catholic university, and I got that letter like 15 years ago, right, when I signed on, this is complicated, right? First of all, it's higher education. So I, I, I imagine some college president would say, well, we're not business, but you and I know it's a business, right? I want to fall back on the, the Lockean insight that at a certain point, the state is on top because the state has to make decisions for the greater good right? and access to this type of reproductive uh, medicine and technology isn't solely limited to reproduction. There are other reasons why uh, female employees of a university would need access to those goods. So if Locke argued that the state's primary job is to protect its citizens, right? The state has an absolute interest in telling your university and my university to knock it off, right? Knock it off. What's so interesting in the Catholic case is now it gets even more complicated. The majority of lay Catholics support that, right? They want easy access to contraception, easy access uh, to abortion. They want it, right? So you have this curious situation. Who is the American government supposed to listen to? 
the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops or the Catholics in the pews who tend to agree that they'd like to have this medical option available to them, right? I know what Mr. Madison and Mr. Jefferson said, right? They warned against what they called ecclesiastical corporations. And they basically said, don't ever engage in a, in a kind of group negotiation with the Anglican church, right? As a state, we recognize individual citizens, right? And fortuitously here, individual Catholic citizens are in accord with the position that you've just stated as a Catholic, I believe. David, yes, as a Catholic? Yes, I am Catholic. I, I think most Catholics that I know are of that view, right? But the church isn't, which is a fascinating dynamic. Well, and this brings us back to where we started the conversation, and that is your thesis that the state needs to be in the, the, the top position in the hierarchy. What, what I'm observing is both the church and the market are wanting to thwart the state in that primary position. So you mentioned pincers before, but those are two very powerful pincers that are going after state power. And so talk about the dynamic. How does the state continue to assert itself in the top position and not become tyrannical? Yeah. So Locke, again, thought this one through, right? So did Luther, by the way. I refer to it as internal constraint. So what Locke understood is just as he understood religion gone wild, he understood a state gone wild. So Locke, in his own way, intimated that there must be checks and balances on the power of the state itself. So what are examples of checks and balances? A written constitution, that's nice, right? A functioning judiciary, that's great. A free and open press, wonderful, right? So good secular states find ways to antagonize themselves. And to me, that's a good secular state, right? That creates the structural preconditions for people to disagree with the state. So what we're learning is a president, be it Trump or Biden, suggests a policy, and then everyone sues, and it goes to the courts. It's messy. It's time-consuming, right? It privileges those who can financially afford to go to the courts, right? But that, to me, is a solid mechanism of internal constraint. What we must be afraid of is a secular state that has nothing but green lights in front of it, all right? That can do absolutely anything it wishes to do, and that's where the Soviet example is particularly striking. I love this idea of self-antagonism. But one thing that also comes up in your book, Secularism, The Basics, is even when you have something like a written constitution or a founding document that says, in the American context, all men are created equal, uh, you, you point out that even when those words were written, it was clearly not true. First of all, the, the idea of men was very limited and the idea of equality was very limited. You could find demonstrable examples on the ground of human beings that were not under the umbrella of equality in that particular point. So there's a kind of theory and practice problem here that is going on. So a, a secular state that talks the talk really well, but doesn't walk the walk really well, that's a problem, isn't it? Yeah, the technical term is constitutional noncompliance. And constitutional noncompliance is pronounced everywhere, but it's particularly pronounced with secularisms. And my gut is telling me a lot of these African constitutions that we had mentioned earlier the reason they talk about secularism or separation of church and state or no established religion, those aren't all the same thing, by the way, is that they grafted it from French legal codes, maybe, right? That they're taking it from the French. The observation made by Africanists is that in most African countries, Ethiopia being a very good example, which has a very had a very nice secular constitution, by the way, really tightly written, right? And forward looking, nobody abided by it. The state didn't abide by it, right? 
and the citizenry didn't abide by it, right? So this constitutional noncompliance problem is really a thing, but it's not only secularism, obviously, right? And remember, the idea that our founders were secular, I feel critical scholarship has punctured that balloon. You had Mr. Madison and you had Mr. Jefferson, and they were outliers. They were odd cats, right? Especially Mr. Jefferson. I don't think Mr. Washington, Mr. Franklin, Mr. Hamilton were in the same space vis-a-vis the interrelation between religion and the state, right? So we never really had secularism in this country until the mid-20th century. And I think it had a good run, right? I do want to say that those were 40 good years, 1947 till 1985, when Justice Rehnquist murdered it in the Jaffrey case, where he said the wall of separation is a bad metaphor, bad history, should be explicitly abandoned, right? But there are great Catholic highlights there. Remember when John F. Kennedy said, I believe in an America where the separation of church and... Oh, that's beautiful. September 1960. That's the high point of American separation of secularism. Right? If only we could get back to those moments. When I show that clip at Catholic Georgetown University, students cry. Right? They just cry at that speech right? because it's so unusual for them, right? given what they've heard, many of whom are Catholic in their churches, to see this charismatic, attractive Catholic president talking about the separation of church and state and invoking his Catholicism as well. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Jacques Berlinerblau. He's professor of Jewish civilization in the Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. He's the author of numerous books and scholarly articles on secularism. Today, we're talking about his most recent book, Secularism, The Basics, out recently from Routledge Press. I've occasionally had on my program Jay Wexler, who studies the Supreme Court, teaches at Boston. And in a conversation with him, I actually brought up your thesis of secularity. And I, I talked about the way that you thought about secularism. And he, his response was, and I, I don't, I'm just going to paraphrase it. I'm not going to quote it word for word. But basically, unfortunately, in America, that ship has sailed. The best that we can hope for is a kind of robust pluralism where we create a space where the kind of conversation of all against all can go as freely as possible. Now, when we have that kind of position, how does that square with how you're thinking about this in terms of actual applicability? Like, how would you suggest that that secularism be enacted politically in a place like America today? Okay, so I'm not quite sure what you told Professor Wexler I'm going to find out. I'm going to learn a little bit, right? This move to say secularism is dead, let's move to pluralism, y'all, right? Nothing to see here, right? Step lively, folks. I'm skeptical of it. All love and respect to Professor Wexler, right? What I want to say is this, and I hope this might have been the argument that you were bringing to his attention. I'm kind of done with the First Amendment as a way forward for the types of secularisms that I think are good for this country. So I'm abandoning the First Amendment and I'm going to the 14th. What is it that I like about the 14th Amendment? I really like this law, as did so many of the legal architects of the civil rights movement, equal protection under the law, right? What I'm starting to notice in the United States is we're actually not all equal. Let me give you an example on the religious. I mean, I've noticed it for a long time. We've noticed it since 1619, right? So why should a Jewish woman in Texas be subjected to a uniquely conservative Christian view of when life begins, right? Why must she be subjected? Why must the gay couple in Kentucky be subjected to a uniquely conservative Christian view about the legitimacy of same-sex union, 
right? So in some fundamental way, the rights of religious minorities, religious moderates, and non-believers have become less than those of right-wing conservative white Christians in the United States. So whatever it was that Mr. Wexler was getting at, I would argue secularism might have a few good runs left in it if you were to move off that problematic First Amendment, which really isn't helping us, right, and hasn't been theorized, I think, particularly innovatively by a lot of secular thinkers. I think the next step is equality, right? Whether you are religious or irreligious, when it comes to those questions involving faith, there has to be some type of parity between citizens. And I bet you most Americans agree. I bet you 65% of Americans be like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We like that. And I want to put in the caveat that any characterizations of Jay Wexler's position would be my failing. I think that if I recall correctly, his ideal is actually very close to the ideal that you are putting forth as well. I think that just from a pragmatic standpoint, he's saying we can't achieve that right now, just given the facts on the ground. And that, and so that brings me back again to this kind of question about politics, but I want to ask it in a slightly different way. I'm thinking now of... <laughs> Uh, a book by Stanley Fish called Save the World on Your Own Time, and he's speaking directly to academics like you and me. We write books and we spin theories and we say things. And does that have any value for the kind of very practical political questions that we're asking about how the state should arrange itself with regard to these other power forces? I'm asking that particularly because in your book, Secularism, the Basics, you sort of go after thinkers of high theory. And I'm thinking in particular, Michel Foucault, who you actually pull out for an acronym of uh, po- Pomo Foco, if I can remember. And so Foucault is specifically named as one of the problems here. And I just, so I want to ask you, does theory, does critical analysis have a role at all in this? Or is this really brass tacks, pragmatic political theory that really needs to come to the fore to help to bring a more secular regime into place? To me, this is a question of professorial responsibility, right? Our our responsibility is to find the truths or truths and be damned. That's our responsibility, right? And then the activists have to take those truths and they have to implement them, all right? So you might not know my personal backstory, but I get into a lot of arguments with new atheists and secularists, believe it or not, probably far more than I do with conservative Christians and conservative Catholics and Islamists and Chabad folk, right? It's a peculiarity, right? So what I do want to notice, and you had mentioned the Pomo Foucault stuff, the conservative Christian activist wing has been much more receptive to its scholars than, let's say, the secularist activist wing has been to its own, right? So I feel when I look at these rather brilliant legal strategies uh, that we see coming forth from the Christian right, there is a law professor back there, right? There are lots of law professors. They probably meet once a year in Genoa, right? And they have a conference and they talk about coming strategies. I don't see the same connect between the scholarship being produced and the activism on the ground in the secular movement. What's interesting about the Foucauldians, and let me give the Foucauldians their flowers, right? Those people are brilliant. I never once said that you don't have some sublime intellectuals there. I've studied with some of them. So that's not my beef with them, right? My beef with them is one, this congenital dislike of secularism, and two, the unwillingness to suggest any sort of alternative other than 
I don't know, the Ottoman Empire. I don't know. They like empires, or they like medieval things, right? I'm being a little facetious. But three, what's very interesting about the Foucauldians is they control the research university, but no one, as far as I know, on the ground in activist or legal circles is taking their suggestions and implementing them and putting them into practice, right? So I just find that kind of amusing, but all honored to them. They produce a lot of scholarship. They're very good. They're very smart. I just wish if they're going to ransack secularism, as is their want and as is their right, I want to see what the alternative is. All right, show me the alternative. Maybe they'll convince me and I'll become one of them. So as we look ahead, you have been working on this project now for years and you have been bringing these questions into the public sphere and into public debate for years. Is the needle moving? Do you see progress based upon the work that you've been doing, both in talking to folks on chat shows, but also producing books like this? And I I guess what I really want to ask you is, what are the markers that we are moving in the right direction? Wow, that's a really good question. Do I think I personally am making a difference? No. Do I think the book is useful? Yes, And to me, the marker is always my undergrads, right? That's where, because they're the future generation, right? They're the ones that are going to change the world. What is the metric for a scholar to know what I'm doing actually impacts upon the world? Now, I'm going to fall back on a really cheesy, right? To me, the fundamental unit of education is what happens in a classroom lecture. So if I'm giving a good lecture and I'm watching a student grow and get smarter, right? Even if that student is politically opposed to me in some way, that's fine. I've done my job. That's my job as a professor. Right? I didn't become a politician for a reason. I didn't become an activist for a reason. So as a scholar and as a teacher, I just want my students to be smarter, to be more thoughtful. Right Now, I know that's not the answer you wanted. In terms of are things changing, I think post-January 6th, I noticed the change. Right, And I'm going to signal my colleague, Michelle Borstein of the Washington Post, who wrote a piece which I thought was groundbreaking in a way where she said the unspeakable. People have been saying it, don't get me wrong, but this was the Washington Post, right? And in the Washington Post, she said, hey, did you notice all those Christian flags, right? Did you notice all the Christian flags? You see those cats praying on the well of the Senate chamber? What was up with that, right? And so here was in mainstream media and the New York Times did a story right parallel to it. Now it could be said, right? We've got a Christian nationalism problem in this country. That was a very hard thing for mainstream media to say, loud and proud on the front page until after January 6th. So yes, I think there is a greater recognition of John Locke's core insight that religion is great, but it can combust and overheat and explode and take everyone down with it. I feel that's changing and I feel that's quite positive. Well, Jacques Berlinerblau, when we spoke 10 years ago, that conversation changed the way that I thought about these things. And I want to tell you, it has changed the way that I teach in many ways. And so I am grateful for your work, both from 10 years ago when you wrote How to Be Secular, but also that you are continuing to make this an area of focus for your scholarship. I'm sure that this new book, Secularism, the Basics, is going to be useful not only to me, but to my listeners. I encourage them to read it and to study it. And I just want to thank you for taking the time along with your colleagues to write it, but also taking time today to talk to us about it. I've really enjoyed this conversation. And thank you for doing what you do. This is how democracy lives, right? People talk about books that a couple of thousand people read. That's it, right? But it's really important that that this happen every day in this country. Thank you, David. 
We've been speaking today with Jacques Berlinerblau. He's professor of Jewish civilization in the Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. He's the author of numerous books and scholarly articles on secularism. Longtime listeners will recall that we spoke to him back in 2012 about his book, How to Be Secular, A Call to Arms for Religious Freedom. Today, we've been speaking about his most recent book, Secularism, The Basics, out recently from Routledge Press. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.